0: John Slover on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you?
1: I'm very good. How are you?
0: Great to see you. You too. So, uh, when did you get into wine?
1: I got into wine totally out of the blue in '96 when I was living in Boston. I had been out of college maybe three or four years. What were you like in college? What was the young Slover? I was an athlete, but I studied biology, math. You know, I wasn't really, I didn't really have aspirations of going to grad school, but I worked in science for a little bit. I was a lab tech at MIT. For a little bit in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences, um, very important, and um, tutored organic chemistry at UMass Boston a little bit. But you know, I sort of moved around a little bit and didn't really have. Uh, I wasn't in a job for very long. I was also playing music. Of all things, I've been a.
0: I so you were trying to get laid? Is what yeah. you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> it Wasn't working. <laughs> Let me play you this guitar solo. I just like that kind of musician. Yeah, I was. I was in
1: bands, buddy. I was. Uh, I was rocking. No, I, I played in a band in college and then kept going after, after college. But a good friend of mine from high school, from Brookline, but turned into a total New Yorker, was a phenomenal songwriter. And so he, he asked me, you know, to sort of help him start a band, which is why I eventually moved to New York City. But before that, I was living in Boston. And uh, for a lark, which is sort of how I've done everything, I, I lied my way into a restaurant job, a waiter job completely clueless you told him you had a lot of experience <laughs> yeah like you were the man <laughs> yeah and it helped that they were desperate for staff but you know I, I didn't know anything i mean anything like i didn't know what seat numbers were you know the the, the gm was interviewing me and saying you know well oh, this is seat two and i'm like what's seat two you know like i had no As idea a concept you'd never zero heard of yeah. knowledge but uh a friend of mine told me it was really fun working in restaurants and it was good money and so I, you know, went for it and um, the owner, this Tunisian guy, was a Mediterranean restaurant, hired Sandy Block to do the wine program there. And the he was list. like an MW. He was an MW in Boston. I guess he did, he worked at Legal Seafoods. Long time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he used to import Portuguese wine. Right. So I guess he was, uh, you know, consulting on Restaurant Wine lists. then, this is 96 again. And um, part of the deal, I guess, was that he gave us, he gave the staff seminars. So, I mean, literally... It took like, you know, one seminar to get me hooked. He just took us through the basics of tasting. Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Merlot, Cabernet. in terms of body, you know, took us through the elements of tasting. And, uh, yeah, I just, I thought it was really, really cool to be able to understand what you were tasting. You know, having never, ever broached the subject before. Your uh, family wasn't big in wine. No, my mom's a teetotaler. She drinks a lot of tea. Yeah. good one but yeah i know so um you know the other thing was was that sandy recommended wine for dummies so i I started reading that and um so as i read wine for dummies and picked up like you know general information that night i would go and like sell whatever and it was an incredibly like satisfying experience in in that sort of simple little way selling you know 18 and 26 and you know 29 nine dollar bottles of sauvignon blanc that you just uh, read about. You yeah, read about yeah, Sauvignon uh, Blanc, the grape, and you went Sauvignon. Right. Well, what all the waiters were doing was selling like the cheapest wine in the in whatever section it was. So I started to like explore the more expensive wines, which were you know I, I pushed thirty two bucks a bottle at some point, and uh, you know patted myself on the back. But uh, no, but I, I just mean early on, I, I saw a direct link between learning about wine and, and making more money, and and uh, and also helping guests, and like the amount of appreciation. From guests, when you help them, is is enormous. It still is, even even you know years later. And in the nineties, people were spending money on wine suddenly in the late nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, not so much. I mean, where where you were, Boston. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I moved to New York six months later, and and um, again to play in this band. Uh, It was pretty funny. Like for about four months, I was driving to New York on Sunday morning, had band practice Sunday and and Monday nights, drive back Tuesday, and work Wednesday to Saturday in this restaurant in Boston. you know, a little bit exhausting. But uh anyways, I finally made the, the uh jump to um living in New York. Where'd you live? I sl- ended up on the upper west side, near Columbia, hundred fifteenth, Morningside Heights actually.
0: Looking for some cheap rent.
1: Well, a friend of mine was in grad school there and had a, an empty room, no door, classic, you know. Um I had a sheet hanging over the anyways. But yeah, so Casper so- the friendly ghost over here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, you know, I, 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 two months in, I got a job at uh, a restaurant called the Merlot Bar and Grill. I was literally pounding the pavement. I was walking around, and going it was in called and, Merlot, like the great. It was right. called Merlot, yeah. Not so fashionable that restaurant anymore. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. However, it was right across the street from Lincoln Center. I happened to walk in when they were, you know, was waving resumes around, and they were hiring a bunch of staff. And, um, I, you know, of course, I lied about my experience, but. As soon as I started chatting about wine with the uh, with the owner, the owner interviewed me. He's like, you're hired. You know, we need people who know wine, which was great. So yeah, I started there and um, I trailed a couple times and it was like, you know, a Lincoln Center place directly across the street from Lincoln Center, 530, like every table would fill up within 15 minutes. Everyone needed everything at 745, all the checks had to be down and everyone went out and you'd like go and like, you know, change your diapers and have a warm bottle of milk and then go back for the middle seating. It was like brutal. There was a station that had 20 deuces. Right? One station
0: one that station had, had 20 deuces. 20 tables he yep. had to take care of his one waiter. Yep.
1: You know, with like a busser who didn't give a shit, you know. But uh, the first night when I started, the very first table I went to ordered a bottle of wine. Uh, you know, no clue. I, I, no clue what it was. It turns out it was 89 Vogue Musini. <laughs> you know. Heard of that one. Yeah, exactly. It was 140 bucks on the list at Merlot. Somebody but,
0: had a keen eye for value before the show. Yeah, exactly. But you, tr- you tried it. I don't know. I was too busy. I
1: was too busy getting, uh, you
0: know. To the other 19 deuces. Myself, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, look, totally throwaway restaurant, crappy place. But I definitely learned as, as best as you can to hustle, you know, and, and ha- how to work in, in a restaurant in New York City where everyone needs everything like now and how to survive psychologically and you know, I walked out with like $400 cash every night. It was like you know, one of these old school places. Also at the time, I when I moved into the apartment in Morningside Heights, there was uh, there were three or four of us living together. One guy um, was also a waiter and also just starting to learn about wine. And, you know, looking back, I mean, he became a very good friend, but it was invaluable to have, you know, as a, as a roommate and as a friend, someone who was in exactly the same place, similarly caught up in in the excitement of learning about wine and blown away by you know the wine bug as it were with no door in between you <laughs> yeah he had a door man it wasn't <laughs> fair uh, yeah uh, actually he was right ac- his door was right across from my no door <laughs> makes but, it one step easier exactly. to be like hey uh, <laughs> hey i want to talk this. about
0: the-
1: <laughs> no but but so you know he was also i I gave him my wine for dummies he was reading wine for dummies i was reading Israelis, Kevin, you know, Windows on the World, you know, the basic stuff.
0: The stuff you read back then. But yeah, there wasn't exactly. so much out there. No, right. Not a lot on the internet.
1: No. There was no blogs. Like one of us would read, like, Gewürz Trimener is great with spicy food. And Riesling is, you know, off dry wines are good with spicy food. So we'd, we'd order a bunch of Chinese food, spicy Chinese food, and open, you know, four or five different things and taste them. And to have someone to talk about the stuff with was invaluable. And um, of course, you could taste more, more things because you have. Two mouths and two esophaguses and two livers. And you're just talking about you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was great. I actually got him a job at Merlot. So we were working together there. And then he le- left eventually. You know, Didn't want a career as a waiter at Merlot. So he moved up Amsterdam Avenue to um, a place called Vermouth. <laughs> Believe it or not. And that was a martini bar that happened to have a very talented chef, so the food was way above the level of the of this you know kind of I mean that's frat row up there those blocks of Amsterdam Avenue. So I eventually left Merlot and went up to work with Jeff, my friend Jeff Puccini, at Vermouth, and uh, we convinced the owner to let us make a wine list. So that was that was my first wine list co- you know co-written with uh, with Jeff. That seems pretty early in the game. I mean, like- yeah, this was like I mean I started in '96, and this was like this was the end of 97, <laughs> you know, and you know, the, 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 cluelessness continued, you know, I didn't know how to buy wine. I, I you know, and so I forget even how I learned this, but I, I guess maybe a sales rep came by and said, Hey, would you like to taste some wine? And so we, we made a cool little wine list. We both, I mean, at that point I was equal opportunity. I was into everything, you know, over the years, my taste changed and like that. But so we, we had a little bit of everything in a 16 bottle wine list. <laughs> but I remember, you know, even back then, early on, I was very, I had an affinity for older wines. Just everything I read was about how wine gets better with age. And so I was always investigating that, and, and the flavors always appealed to me. And yeah, it was 90, 97, but we, instead of having like, you know, Bordeaux from the 90s, we had Bordeaux from the 80s, which, you know, weren't that old then, but they were older. You did (laughs) some work to find some stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think we had like 89 Mokaiu from uh, Muli and, you know, little stuff. We had an old, you know, an 80s Rioja Grand Reserva. But it was fun, you know. And then the place, you know, kind of fell apart. And someone told me that City Hall Restaurant, which was just opening, was hiring people. So I went down there to Duane Street, interviewed, and they weren't, they were actually done hiring dining room staff but they have these two huge like beautiful private rooms and they needed banquet waiters so they i got hired as a banquet waiter and uh all this time i was basically teaching myself about wine with my again with my friend jeff and also reading whatever i could get my hands on at some point while i was working at city hall i moved to brooklyn and i was living um over in Borough hill so i i was every weekend i'd go up to the brooklyn public library near grand army plaza and take out whatever, whatever I could find on wine. You know, I wasn't really filtering anything. Like if it was about wine, I took it out and I read it. If it sucked or if it, you know, would, it didn't matter. It was like absorbing everything. I remember reading a book about, it was like a catalog of menus and wines that were eaten and drunk at Chevalier de Taste van dinners, you know, going back to like maybe even the late 19th century, but certainly the early part of the 20th century, you know, crazy for, for someone at the time who was like, I didn't know anything. It was kind of interesting at, um, back at city hall, I was, you know, a banquet waiter and, um, it was a steakhouse. It still is a steakhouse still there actually very successful place. And the GM was the buyer was kind of the wine director on the side. And, um, he had an all American wine list. And even then now I'm, I'm, it's not that I don't like new world wines, but I just certainly don't favor them. I, um, You know, I I drink old world wines. That's how my palate is geared and that's how my tastes have developed. But back then, I was still into them. However, I was also into old world stuff. And I kept sort of, I had a dialogue going with this GM because he knew I was into wine. And, you know, we chatted about producers and this and that. And I said, why don't you get some, you know, how about you get some French wines or, you know, some Bordeaux or some Rhone or, you know, it's good with steak. And he's like, nah, think they make very good wine in the old world you know it's just like really ridiculous but people used to say stuff like that yeah yeah in the 90s actually years later after that i got the job at blue hill and he came in with a group to blue hill he brought in all napa cabs and he gave me a taste of everything and and at the end he's like so you see california can make good wine i'm like you completely misunderstood where i was coming from back then you know it's like i never said that i just wanted a couple of
0: french selections you know so he basically told you no
1: yeah, yeah. No, I mean, he wasn't interested in, in any of that stuff. I mean, I was, whatever. I was you were waiter. excited yeah. and he was like, no. He was no. crushing me, stepping on me. <laughs> no, but it did motivate me to go and, and try to become a wine director. Um, so
0: rather than stay there and be miserable, you're yeah, like, exactly. oh, maybe I need to call my um, own shots then. Although, again, I was making a ton of money. I, was like, I made so much
1: money as a waiter. Amazing. But, uh, yeah, I basically decided that, you know, wine was something I was really... I really wanted to do. and
0: I mean, clearly. It seems like it yeah. affected a lot of key choices there. In sure. pretty quick succession. Oh, yeah. Definitely, no. No, I, I
1: knew, you know, as a waiter at all of these places, there were no sommeliers. I mean, these were not, uh, you know, cutting-edge restaurants. And so, essentially, I was the sommelier for my tables. So, I knew I could do it. I knew, you know, it would just be, you know, a slightly different kind of sommeliering, you know, just without all the taking orders and dinner orders and stuff like that.
0: But Making salads and... <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I ended up getting the, the job of wine director at Blue Hill, which was a phenomenal first wine director job. And I, I got it with a little bit of luck and, and the right kind of timing and the right kind of people like sort of pulling for me. And, and, um, and then also, you know, having learned a lot about wine and helped. So um, I ended up interviewing like three or four times. They had hired Liz Ouellette to to help interview and pick out people and vet people. So I eventually interviewed with her and um and this was when blue hill was first starting. Yeah, hadn't opened yet. And uh I remember like a particular conversation with Liz and Dan and Franco, Dan Barber the the owner, where Dan had the idea to put a wine suggestion on on the menu for every dish. And I he said, "You know, what do you think of that?" And I said I said, "Well, I think I think it's a great idea in some ways and I think in other ways could cause some confusion for people and I think for sure it'll prevent people from exploring off the beaten track pairings, or exploring at all, because people will walk in and they'll be like, "I'll have that dish and I'll have that wine," um, and there'll be no conversation. And, and he said, "Well, give me an example of an off the beaten track pairing." I said, "Well, a steak with a very, very light, austere, high acid white wine, for example." And um, I think that impressed Liz. <laughs> I think she recommended me for the job, and I think, well, I think it also impressed Dan because he he's all about thinking differently about things.
0: What was he like?
1: Dan is, you know, amazing, totally revolutionary. He, he's not the first person to local and seasonal, but he certainly, like, grabbed it by the horns and, and uh, by the balls, shall we say. By the roots. By the roots, <laughs> yeah. That would have been funnier. But, yeah, he's he, um, amazing, like, bottomless energy. And uh, really, it, he's driven by strong belief in philosophy on the matters of how big agriculture is sort of wrecking the soil and how the way to save the economy is, is through, you know, local and seasonal agriculture and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, he, he was great. And I have to say for me, like to see someone like him, I mean, it it was a completely different experience from, you know, the three restaurants I had worked in before or the four, I guess, including the one in Boston where all, all of a sudden the chef is totally into wine and sees it as a big important part of, of the guest experience and and obviously revenue and and like that. So I had numerous conversations with him every day. He would describe the dishes in great detail, like very stimulating for people like me, where he would break down the dishes in the ingredients, the flavors, and also the structure. Like, you know, this is, this has got some acid to it and it has. And then for the first time I was like, he's like, let's open this and try this with this dish. And, you know, eye opening for me. It was, it was amazing. I was like, I'm in the right place. <laughs> you know,
0: how had he conceptualized the restaurant? I mean, what was the plan going to be?
1: I think that they had, uh, had a very articulated business plan of selecting staff in key positions who were sort of new at what they were doing and therefore very motivated and enthusiastic and, you know, like exactly like me at, at that point. Now I'm totally jaded and, no. You know, but no, I was I, you know I was like ready for this this kind of opportunity, and S- Franco was his first time GM, and and then of course Alex Urania was the opening chef de cuisine, talented guy, super talented. I guess he had staged for six months at El Bui, so there was some technology involved and all these exotic things I'd never seen before like foams and, but the the three of us, me, Alex, and and Franco, and of course Dan, who was like unbelievable sort of energy all pointing in the direction of, you know, let's do things differently and and let's, you know, have intense food and, and great wine pairings and and make the dishes different. And, you know, I remember Dan saying, you know, restaurants serve food too hot. You can't taste it. He, he would serve things like a little bit less hot and not room temperature, but get sendbacks all the time, you know? So there was a constant sort of PR campaign going on between the staff and the guests. And Dan put a lot of effort into training the staff to do that kind of stuff. You know, he's like, you know, why would you want to take a bite of food and it burns your tongue and then you can't taste anything, <laughs> you know? Or like he didn't put cream and butter in sauces, for example. That was like a big, big deal for him. Uh, you know, one day I was in the kitchen. He said, hey, you see those two guys there? He's like, if I put cream and butter in the sauces, I could just fire them. I wouldn't need them. You know, it's like a <laughs> new, brand new concept for me, you know, making flavorful sauces without cream and butter is labor intensive, costs money. You know, so that, that's kind of the way he was. And, and he had to like explain that to me so that I could then explain it to the st- Like everyone needed to know that. You know, as a result, I've always loved eating there because it's like you never feel painfully stuffed, you know, with cream and butter. And that's how Dan was. And he did all of his own PR. Oh, really? Yeah. There was no PR company. You know, he was constantly in touch with the various writers for the New York Times and other critics and
0: He's like, are you having lunch right now? Is it too hot? Are you burning your tongue? (laughs) Can you even use your tongue to Come on in here. Have a room temperature salmon. You know? I got two guys that are here. (laughs) They're not at that place that uses cream. They'll be happy to say hi.
1: If we can get them away from the sauce making. It was amazing also to go from these restaurants that were sort of not at all on the map in any way to, like, all of a sudden, like, every media person in food and wine came in. Every, like... I mean, it wasn't a huge pool of wine directors or sommeliers like it is now, but like, you know, every wine director sommelier came in. So like, that was a time for me where I was meeting, I I went from basically teaching myself, not understanding that like, you don't have to like everything and you don't have to like be excited about everything. You can sort of pick and choose and like figure out what you like. And also some things are bad, you know, that's like a new concept, you know, this, this sucks. <laughs> But um, so, for example, a couple weeks in, Liz Willette brought Robert Boren for dinner, who I worked with for many, many years afterwards, and uh, who became, you know one of my best friends, and uh, proved to be great for my career as well as an aside. But yeah, he came in with Liz for dinner and, and was super nice, and like, I guess he had been the wine director at Babo, and he'd worked at Danielle and Lupa and Colina, and you know, knew a ton about. Italian wine, and I knew a little bit, but the, you know Italy's tough, you know? Burgundy's easy by comparison, but uh you know he said, you know, listen, uh, you know, I know you're new, and like if you have any questions, here's my number you know, it doesn't matter how small the question is, just call me so that's like, very nice, yeah, super nice, and indispensable <laughs> I didn't know any like you know, like I said, the cluelessness was continuing, It was on a roll I didn't know how to price ports i'd never have to like all the little things like. You know, buying wine, knowing about wine is like kind of the main thing. And then there's all these auxiliary things you have to know. I didn't know anything about scotches. I didn't know anything about Amari. You know, so every time I walked anywhere, went anywhere, I was giving myself a crash course in something, right? So I like Warren Fraser was the wine director at Lupa. So I heard about Lupa. I never didn't know about Lupa before. Walk in and like a wall of Amari. Like, what the hell is that? You know, so Warren, you know, all these people became like inadvertent, mentors and teachers, you know, I had a Piero Pen Suave La Roca at Lupa and I was like, amazing. So I actually called Warren. I was like, Hey, do you mind if I, uh, like, I'd love to put that on my wine list at Blue Hill. Do you have any problem with that? He's like, why the fuck would I care? (laughs) But I'm like, Oh, I don't know. It's like, I don't don't know what's proprietary. You know, I didn't know anything, but you know, that's kind of how I, how I did things. Another, you know, I went to. Have dinner at Seventy One Clinton Fresh Food. I tasted the uh, like the Gaia Thalassides from Greece, and uh, same thing. I would go, you know, Dewey. I'd love to have this, you know, by the glass at Blue Hill. Do you have any issue with that? And he's like, do whatever you want. You were like, I'd love to mispronounce <laughs> this on yeah. the glass at Blue Hill.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Dewey was like, get the fuck out of my face. So, but uh, it was really an amazing time for me for all that. You know, I, I I started to like, I put the word out with all my sales reps that I liked older things and if there was anything in their books. So I, I found my way to some like, you know, seven or eight, ten year old, like Copertino, Rosso Reserva. From the
0: co-op. Yeah. 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 In terms of something with age, you know, taste yeah, old. Yeah. 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 Has that yeah. This was like a seven, a seven
1: or eight year old Negro Amaro, which I mean, it was like eight bucks a bottle, seven bucks a bottle or something like that. Cheap. And, uh, I think a lot of people were surprised that I was pouring something with a little bit of age, not a lot of age, but a little bit of age. And uh, it was a great wine. Like, it really had a lot of appeal. So a lot of people, I think, were blown away by you know, that kind of experience. Which I've always tried to look for inexpensive wines with some age so that I can sort of open that experience up to people who don't want to spend a ton of money. And, and it kind of started then, you know, when, it, when I had success with that kind of wine.
0: Probably thinking back to your, how you first got started, just trying to bootstrap yourself and being like, Hey, yeah. maybe some other people want to learn without. Spending yeah, exactly. A ton right. Of right. Right.
1: So yeah, it was an amazing time. I learned a lot back then by listening to people. What did that list look like? When I started buying, you know, again, no clue what I was doing. I somehow understood that because of the lightness and the intensity of the food that the wines would like lighter you know, less alcoholy, less oaky wines would be better. Particularly Riesling, Chenin Blanc, and then Reds, that you know, Burgundy, Beaujolais, things like that. Dolcetto, Barbera. I just started tasting with purveyors and buying, and I'd say, oh, well, I'll take a case of that, I'll take a case of that. And little by little, I, I ended up with 100 wines, and I, and I printed it up on their stationery. Dan's sister, or sister-in-law, uh, you know, was in charge of all the stuff. She had a format, uh, you know, beautiful little wine list. Printed it up and I gave it to Dan. And he looked at it and he just started cracking up. <laughs> I was like, ah. Um, and basically he's like, there's one California Merlot. There's one California Chardonnay. There's no Cabernet, you know, except for, you know, he's like, oh, there's a Bordeaux, but there's no California Cabernet. And it was not entirely unintentional, but it was basically unintentional. I just started buying stuff that I liked. And um, so I ended up with an eclectic, you know, list of hundred wines with, I mean, now it's not so off the beaten track, but it, I guess at the time it was a little bit more off the beaten track. You know, German and Austrian wines, I had a selection of sherrys. At some point I got into sherry. You know, it was like, there's definitely some labor of, of love involved in some aspect of what I was doing. You know, there's an element to that and what I've always done of turning people on to things that they might not know. And that's, I mean, that was very easy to do with Riesling because not a lot of people do that. It's still easy, but it's more people know about it now.
0: Well, also, the prices yeah. were going high for white burgundy, and we were in the dawn of the premox, right like and there was these That's true, yeah more reductive yeah. wines from Austria Wines that were, were dry. premoxing as we as we watched, but I remember yeah. not understanding what was going on when that was right. happening, right, and just being having things being returned or things were yeah, tasting yeah, yeah. butterscotchy, and you yeah. couldn't figure out right. you didn't understand why, but yeah, you yeah. knew these Austrian wines were crisp yeah. and dry,
1: yeah, you know crisp dry and, and flavorful, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no, I know so. It turns out that I kind of found my way to the kind of wine list that I always make <laughs> almost without fail, no matter where I've been, all the wines that worked well with blue Hills food happened to be the wines that I like. And because it was a hundred wines it was, was not big and there was no storage. I couldn't like the idea of having a bunch of wines that I didn't necessarily like, or that I didn't think go, went with the food, but that I knew people would like, I just, I couldn't, didn't have room for them. And frankly, Dan was behind, you know, doing it differently. So, you know, every now and then I'd get, you know, someone come in and say, I want a Cabernet. Like, with your poached salmon? It was, uh, a lot of the guests came in understanding what kind of what the place was like. And, and people that didn't really understand what the place was like didn't come back. And, and it was you know, it was fine.
0: And you developed a lot of fairly well-to-do regulars. I mean, West Village and that yeah. place. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they yeah. had money to spend and they came yes. back a lot of-
1: and the barbers and Franco, Franco's great at that. He came from Gramercy Tavern, you know, service awards every year from Gramercy Tavern. So yeah, uh, Franco and, and the barbers were extremely fixed on, on the concept of, of hospitality, you know, Danny Meyer style. And then, you know, after Blue Hill, I ended up at uh, Washington Park and Crew, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but that wasn't necessarily me buying, although I did buy a bunch, but that was a big, big program.
0: Yeah. I mean, that seems like night and day.
1: Yeah. Night and day. Yeah. From but, what you had. No, for sure. S-
0: yeah. Size. Right.
1: But then later at Bar Henry and at Chiano, it was still like this, a similar kind of list as as what I had at Blue Hill, you know, with obviously
0: variations. Chiano was Italian. So I had a lot more Italian ones. The time changes, but the slower remains the same. That's Is right. that what you're trying to say?
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I was struck by, um, listening to Beth von Benz's, uh, podcast, how she made, uh, eclectic list at first and then later she made a greek list and then later a steakhouse list and i'm like i've never you know really gone outside
0: of my comfort zone (laughs) um so beth is my new hero how did you end up at washington park and crew and all that
1: having become good friends with robert uh, robert was hired by jonathan waxman and roy welland who was the the um, financial partner of jonathan Robert was hired to, to do the initial purchase for Washington Park. So I guess Robert was moonlighting at Nick and Tony's in the Hamptons during the summer. And Robert knew Jonathan from working at Colina. And I guess uh, Jonathan met Roy, maybe through their daughters. And uh, John, you know, they decided to partner up and make a restaurant. And then Jonathan said, I know who I want to hire. So Jonathan brought Roy to Nick and Tony's to meet Robert. And, and uh, you know, kind of the rest is history. But um, Robert was tasked with creating a, a wine team, so he he hired me and Alex Miranda, who had been a sommelier at Colina with Robert. Actually, I, almost every place that I've worked, I worked with Alex. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was a bartender at Blue Hill. We were sommeliers at Washington Park. We were sommeliers at Crew. I hired him at Bar Henry to be a sommelier.
0: Your future I, at Bowler is set.
1: That's right. <laughs> yeah. So. They were going to hire a wine director, but Alex and I were hired as, as sommeliers and to help Robert, you know, get all the wines in the place. And, you know, and after, after Blue Hill with like no wine storage, I mean, and now they have a great wine room, but it took time to go to Washington Park and to be there when like 600 cases of wine were delivered from like Switzerland and from England and, and you know, from local distributors and from auction houses. And it was like, I felt like I
0: would sort of hit the jackpot. and That's um, a very different style of buying. Oh, yeah. Not totally. just from the distributor, but...
1: No, I know, yeah. I had a tiny, tiny little bit of that at Blue Hill, coincidentally with Robert's help. I mean, there was just no room at Blue Hill for that. So, you know, here's, you know, boxes from BV in Switzerland and open them up and it's like one exotic Italian wine after the next, like a procession. You know, 85 Torricelli, Quintarelli, Bea, like all these handwritten labels. It was like, you know, I see this whole th- time in, in slides, you know, with all these exotic labels floating by. And, you know, it was just ridiculous. But, and then also cases of like Grans-Echezeau and Richebourg, cases of Jaye and DRC. And I mean, I'd, I'd read about these producers and they were like holy grail wines to me. They, those wines never become not special. <laughs> but of course, I've I've, I've had them. Um, a lot and so it's different now but back then I was like you know reaching out to like stroke the bottles and like holy crap it's like jae. and uh, I mean you know besides that kind of experience we were kind of scrambling to put all the wines on the wine list and like you know it also stretched my knowledge of like appellations and things like that I remember particularly putting all the Corton Charlemagne that we had under the subheader Alex Corton which, you know, Robert bitch slapped me for. Because there's a... He's like, oh, is that wine? Is that, (laughs) is that Rumier Corton Charlemagne from Alex Corton? huh, asshole? So, you know, I had to go to the book and figure out where the, you know, and I mean, and and that in itself, I was like, holy crap, one vineyard's in three different villages, you know. So yeah, that that was amazing. And then also um, I was tasked with, at Washington Park when we opened, building out one of the wine rooms. So I, I designed the shelves and I mean, you know, Robert's guidance and, you know, pitching the shelves back a little bit, a, a degree just so that A, they don't roll off and B, you take the wine off the cork a little bit. And then, you know, coming up with numbering systems. I mean, we're talking about 1,200 selections we opened up with. We ended up with 2,000 at Washington Park. And then later at Crewe, we ended up with 4,000, but a 1,000, you know, 1,200 selections, you actually now have to like figure out how to find them, <laughs> you know, instead of like, opening a box and, like, pulling the bottle out. I and think the it's in here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it was interesting to, like, think about coming up with a numbering system and a bin system.
0: Because there wasn't a lot of computer no, uh, resources for that.
1: No, everything was in Excel. And, you know, when we, when we were done getting everything in and we printed the list, Jonathan Waxman said, okay, guys. He, like, he sat at, like, the furthest table away from the door of the uh, kitchen. He's like, I'm timing you. I'm ordering a bottle of, you know, X... And like, he would time us to see how long it would take us to go and get it, which was, you know, I was like, that's a great idea. <laughs> and so the whole bin system and acquisition and, and like that, I think is fascinating. So Washington Park was open for O two and O three, And, uh, you know, Robert was buying wine. Robert and Roy would go to auctions and even Jonathan went to auctions. I made a big purchase in, in Austria as well. And I was also buying locally. So it's kind of like a consortium of buyers, and we were buying faster than we could, you know, bring the wines in. So we'd buy a bunch of stuff, send it to, you know, our offsite warehouse, and then when we had time, we'd bring some in. But when Washington Park closed, we had two thousand selections. It took us about six or seven months to renovate and change to Crew, and in that time, my job was to sort of go through the offsite inventory, bring everything in that wasn't on the wine list, and put it on the wine list. And it jumped to four thousand selections, which <laughs> is you know, ridiculous. We ended up with like 10 pages of Austrian whites.
0: And how did that Austrian thing happen? I remember
1: that being... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh, dating someone who lived in Vienna. Um, Beautiful city. Beautiful city. I mean, for me, it was the only way to have any success in a relationship was to not have the person live in New York (laughs) as far away as possible. But anyways, I, I went to Austria quite a bit in that time over, you know, 2002, 2003. And every time I went... I would go to the Wachau and Compton. I became buddies with like Rudy Peekler and and Hertzbergers and Peter Schleimer, who was worked with Terry, he might still work with Terry Thies, was a good friend. And, and, you know, we would go wine tasting together. He's a cool guy. Great guy. Yeah. So one day I was, I was tasting it with Rudy Peekler at at his domain and um, he had to go talk to this guy, Hubert Foringer, who owns this big wine store in in Speetz, which is where Hertzbergers domain is. So he asked if I wanted to come. So I went along, and while Rudy and, and Hubert were, were talking, I kind of wandered around the store and it was like, my jaw dropped. There were like, you know, ten vintages going back to the '80s of like every wine, you know, Riesling and Gruner Smarokt from every producer that I loved, you know, Knoll, FX Peikler, Rudy Peikler, Prager, Hertzberger. I mean, and and lots of other, you know, Hedler, all, all the, the Brundelmeier, all, all the Comptal greats, and Solomon from the Kremstal, and I was like. I got to buy some wine for Washington park for this. So I talked to Hubert. And I was like, do you ever sell wine to people in the States? And he said, yeah, I, I have a client on the West coast. And so I periodically send a container to Oregon and then, you know, I could easily have it shipped across to New York. I was like, great. Give me your inventory. <laughs> so I brought this inventory back to New York. And I remember sitting in the office with Robert uh, and Richard, Richard Luftig. And, uh, I was like, you know, look at this stuff you know it was all that Austrian stuff and then it was like 78 Bartolo Mascarello barolo and and, and you know magnums of Caverlot and and uh, Giuseppe Rinaldi and and um, lots of super Tuscans and you know all kinds of stuff so we sat there like till like four in the morning we we're like okay let's buy that and I you know made this this list and I I emailed it to, to Roy and I said hey uh, I mean this is a big list these are all the things that I think are worth buying not that I'm saying we should buy all of this, but, uh, you know, I just want to show it to you, but he, he looked at it and he said, uh, would these wines make the list great? And I said, definitely. He's like, okay, buy it. <laughs> I'm like, the whole thing. I'm sorry. did you repeat that? <laughs> yeah. He's like, buy the whole thing. Um, I mean, he was great that way. Like, you know, he, he gave us a lot of freedom. It was really, you know, uh, uh, an honor and a, and a pleasure to work, work for him and and you know we because of that attitude we were able to put together this amazing list with like i mean certainly the best austrian selection outside of
0: austria it was great i remember drinking quite well yeah and um i mean not
1: to mention the you know we must have had half of it must have been burgundy you know the verticals that we had i mean we had if we lifted our napa section out of the crew wine list and put it in any steakhouse it would be you know would go toe to toe with like know, any, we had like hundreds and hundreds of selections of of Cabernet, you know. People accuse us of being like snobs and being old world, you know. It's like, look at our Cabernet section, you know. So I, anyways, it was like, you know, Roy was, was
0: amazing to work for. He, he also seems quite smart. Smart as hell. Quite good yeah. with numbers. and You don't want to play cards with him. Pretty, pretty yeah. chill, actually. Like very, very pretty- chill, very relaxed,
1: you know. It's uh, amazing the doors that opened for me by you know, my association, association with, with, with Robert and Roy, uh, among other people. That is- you know, I I left Crew at some point to do private wine consulting with Roy and Robert, and, and, uh, and also David Beckwith joined us, and and who should replace me? But like you know, Josh Nadal you know, and then eventually Raj Vajja and and Michelle you know, like walked through the doors of Crew. I mean, it was an incredible cast of characters that uh, that I had a chance to to work with and. And no, and you know we're all still friends. So, what was the consulting world like? Crew's Inception coincided with um, you know the enormous economic bubble that developed, and um, a lot of the people that came in the crew were incredibly smart captains of industry who were decided to start becoming wine collectors. And as we became friends with them, they sort of started to informally ask us for help, and eventually we. Realized we could probably start like a real business supporting them and and, and you know getting new clients. We, we were we were meeting new collectors all the time, and so in '07 we started uh, Grand Cru Wine Consulting. I guess Robert and, and David Beckwith, who had worked at Zaki's auction auction house and uh, and also for a year at Babo as a sommelier, had talked about doing this together. And I, I came along with them and Roy, you know, was part of it as well. And so I, I stopped working in restaurants for, for, I filled in a crew here and there when they needed me, but basically I was out. I mean, we, we kind of became a, a sort of high-end wine concierge service for wealthy collectors. And, you know, what we did f- was whatever they needed us to do. It could be buying and building a collection, could be thinning out a collection, selling, helping them sell it. It could be doing wine service at, uh, you know, private dinners in their houses. If they threw parties, it could be, you know, we we organized parties for them. It wasn't just wine stuff. It was also food things, bringing in chefs and, you know, helping them with logistics of transport, et cetera. And uh, it went really, really well and, and largely due to the kinds of clients that we first became friends with and then, you know, added as clients of our consulting company, and that's, you know, largely because of, you know, I mean, I mean, it's not that I wasn't an important part of it, but, you know, Robert and David are excellent at, uh, I guess in a different kind of business, it would be sales. You know, they were excellent at, uh, at making connections with collectors and getting them excited about having us as their, their wine guys. Uh, I fit in as, uh, you know, supporting them and, and, um, you know, helping with all the logistics and, and I've always been very good at seller work and, and that kind of organization, so, you know, we we, were, we worked very well as a team. After um, a couple of years, I sort of missed working in restaurants. And so I had a chance to open a wine bar with a guy who was a friend who I also had worked for in a small capacity since 2000, this fellow named Winston Kulak, who has a real estate company. He owns a bunch of buildings in the West Village and in Long Island City, and he owned two Café Henri's, one on Bedford Street in the West Village and one in Long Island City, which used to be, you remember the Le Cafés? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So on Bedford Street it used to be Le Gemin, or maybe Les Le Deux Gemin, and the owner of Le Gemin wanted to close that and so Winston said, oh, I'll, I'll take over it. So he ran the, the Deux Gamin or, or owned it um, and eventually had a fight with that guy so he changed it to Café Henri. <laughs> Henry is his dog. So in 2000, he came into Blue Hill and he, we were chatting and he said, hey, you know, I really like your wine list and um, I just started this cafe and I'd love to have someone buy wines, you know, you can do whatever you want. You don't worry about marking them up. I just, I want it to be cool and exciting. And I was buying wines for these two cafes for a number of years, just for fun on on the side. And then um, he asked me if I wanted to, you know, help him open a wine bar. And, you know, that eventually became Bar Henry, which was sort of, at first Bar Henry was a client of Grand Cru Wine Consulting. And then I realized that I was kind of spending a lot of time you know, on that list and buying for them. And I realized that I, I kind of was being sort of called back to it. So I, I parted ways with um, them. With, uh, with Grand Crew, With Grand Cru. And, uh, you know, sort Focused of working full, full on. time on, at Bar Henry. Which was like a wine bar. Which was a, a wine bar. And, and when we were talking about how to set it up, I did a lot of thinking about wine bars and uh, sort of thought that if you're going to call yourself a wine bar, a guest should be able to taste a lot of different things. And have an education if they wanted, you know. Be left alone if they didn't, you know. And there should be good beers, and there should be, you know, delicious food,
0: so you can, you know, because a lot of times when you pass a place called wine bar, yeah, it's actually really disappointing if you like wine. Yeah, exactly.
1: On bleaker, you know, it's like a bleaker street wine bar. They have like tiny little glasses and like four wines to taste. Um. Yeah. So so I you know it always annoyed me when I'd see that and. At the same time, I, you know, I thought having 100 selections by the glass would be kind of a waste of wine, especially in a smaller place. And so I sort of came to the idea of having a selection of a large selection of wines where you could order half of the bottle. And then I would open a bottle, serve half, and then I would offer the other basically two glasses to anyone else in the dining room. And uh, I thought that would be a good idea. And that would be a way of like minimizing the amount of wine you throw out because it goes bad. And also create kind of a chaotic, unpredictable... You never know what's going to be open. You can exactly, come try right. something new. Right. And, and as the wine bar was built out, you know, Winston had, had gotten these enormous mirrors for the bar. And so I thought it might be fun to like, get a wax pencil and, and sort of write on the mirrors what was available. So I imagine, the way I imagined it actually ended up happening is I imagined people would eventually learn that this is what we do and then come in and like, go right to the mirror to see what was open. It happened.
0: It worked out pretty well. It worked out
1: well. So I ended up being like a 250 bottle list or a 300 bottle list. And almost half were available by by the half bottle. Got a lot of press and, you know, it was a cool place where you could like explore wine that way. And and then the other list, which wasn't offered by the half bottle, was all like, you know, stuff that we had a crew <laughs> You know, was, you could get a bottle of 71 Marcarini Barolo Brunate for like 360 bucks or, you know. So I wanted everything to be like twenty or thirty percent less expensive than if you found it at a three-star or four-star restaurant or even two-star restaurant, you know, in this kind of downtown place. And it, you know, it worked pretty well for a little while. So that was cool. And then after a year, Che Galante, who who was the chef at the Crew, came to into to eat at Bar Henry, and you know, we reconnected. He seems
0: to have always liked you.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, we we always got along well, ever since I pulled him
0: off. Yeah, he's not used to being told off. But a lot of times, that's what it takes, right? <laughs> yeah. Between two yeah. kind <laughs> yeah, of yeah. dudes. Yeah,
1: Shay is very different now. But back in in crew days, um, you know, he was kind of an asshole, <laughs> pretty much. But you know, in a way that was classic for chefs, and and uh, you know, I kind, of, I I always sort of like that in chefs.
0: Um, but uh, I think you find it amusing.
1: Well, it's a, like yeah. To I you, you're kind of like, of course, yeah. <laughs>
0: that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, how cute. You can be such a dick. You know, right? I right. mean, that's the way
1: you respond to it. Kind well, of. The, you know, the first chef, the chef in Boston, the first restaurant I worked in, this guy Latvi Saibi, Tunisian guy. And so I started off running food for a couple of weeks and I put the, you know, the, the food on the wrong table and I came back and, and I said, hey, this table needs their food. I put it, you know. It's like, I just sent you with that food. I was like, no, no, I put it on table... And he like literally chased me out of the kitchen with a cleaver. <laughs> he was like wielding a cleaver over his head. And I was like, oh, restaurant business.
0: <laughs> Not to be taken lightly. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: But then, you know, we, we it was always fun after work, you know, and he'd laugh. Yeah, remember when I almost killed you with a cleaver? And we'd
0: laugh and it would be funny. That's why you wanted to get into wine. So you could at least have a small knife right. to <laughs> That's right. like corkscrew yeah. to uh, get back at him with. That's right. In case it got ugly. Yeah. <laughs> Waiters got nothing that's an right. order pad you might have a cleaver but i have a corkscrew <laughs> <laughs> The thing can go in yeah. deep yeah yeah
1: <laughs> but uh, yeah so anyway shay was a dick but an excellent chef his food's amazing
0: yeah it was really good at crew yeah and uh
1: i forget one time in the office like me and robert and and uh shay had made some ridiculous rule about family meal and so we were having a meeting to figure out how to work around his rule And he happened to be in the office because we, and he like kept trying to butt in. And I said, Listen, you made the rule. This meeting is not for you. (laughs) And he was like stunned because I don't think anyone ever really talked to him that way. But uh, yeah, no, ever since,
0: you know, we've been good friends. And uh, so he kind of was like, I'm doing something.
1: Yeah. So he came in. He's like, You know, I met this guy and, you know, we were conceptualizing a restaurant and and, uh, we'd love for you to be the wine director. Um, You know, we like this half bottle program. We want you to bring it here and um so that was chiano and uh you know i jumped at the chance you know i've always had a ton of respect for shay's food and and um, you know he shay shay said you know listen i know how i was a crew but it's know, gonna be different it's gonna time. be different yeah sure yeah, and it, it was a little different yeah you got staff meal <laughs> but yeah, we got staff yeah but uh anyways um i took the half bottle program there and i figured you know there's a big difference in what people are going to be willing to spend in the type of, of Clients and collectors and diners that are going to come. So at Bar Henry, the, the half bottle part of the list was like 40 bucks to like maybe 150 at the top end. And so I extended that to 250 or 220 or something like that. Like I think you could get half of a bottle of uh, 90 Cantalupo Gemme, call this Breclame. And then, you know, of course, the, at Bar Henry, the higher end list was like 200 to 600. So, you know, at, at Chiano, since we had uh, more spendy clients, you know, I I bumped that up to like a thousand. You know, whatever the wine, you know, I had some 93 emeralds from Rumié that was a few thousand bucks. And,
0: but it also seemed like you just kind of got deep on some of the older Italian wines that were coming into the yeah. market, which is a super trend now where yeah. people have 60s, 70s. Right, right, but right. But right. not so much at the time. Right. And you were like, hey, old Carema.
1: I had 70 Prodettori di Carema. I had like some... Late sixties, Valana Spana and um, Barolo and Barbaresco going back to the sixties and seventies and eighties. So Chianti was was great, you know, same thing as as like opening Blue Hill and Washington Park and crew. It's like all of a sudden every food and, and wine writer is there. Like in the, the first month, it's like this procession of like of industry people and and it's always a very exciting time.
0: How did you see the wine industry change during that yeah. sweep? That seems like such yeah. a wide sweep beginning of farm to table yeah, yeah yeah, consolidation kind of last gasp of the wine clubhouse huge right. list moving into wine bar and then exploring right. italy right. along all those things happening because right. those chart things that happened in right. new york like yeah. wine bar serious and got yeah, really yeah. interesting yep. italian wine older got really yeah. charted right you know yeah, that yeah, kind of thing true, yeah. so what was happening in the broader culture outside of the outside the restaurant door
1: there was an incredible proliferation of distributors. Like all of a sudden, like when I was at Blue Hill, I feel like, you know, I was beating like, you know, 20 distributors off with, you know, with a stick. And at Chiano, it was like 20 a day, you know, it was, you know, someone who worked for a company for 10 years as a rep, you know, made some relationships with some of the growers and, and made some new relationships with other growers and said, I can, you know, I can do this and split off and made their own company and, you know, who knows how that led to older wine. Although I think that it certainly led to more Italian wine because it's, I I suspect that France was more charted than Italy, partly because of how different Italy is from North to South. And then also how, you know, you could, you could break new ground and find new producers in Italy. So like, yeah, a a lot of new, all those little splinter companies were Italian companies, you know, Yandamore and, and, uh, you know, Montcalm and, you know, a ton of them. And of course, they probably came hand in hand with a proliferation of Italian restaurants, which was probably inspired by the Batalian Bastianich and their success.
0: And at the same time, huge yeah. proliferation of younger sommiers, seems like, over right. the same period of time. That's isn't?
1: true, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And do you see a difference between your generation of sommiers or older than you and the younger people? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Besides age. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, besides <laughs> the fact that you watch different TV shows. I mean, something yeah, that no, I to understand. do with yeah, wine. Yeah. You know?
1: Well, you know, I, I guess like, you know, when I, when, when I was coming up, there were more people like me who just did it on their own. And, you know, so I, I went through a long period of, you know, working in like third rate restaurants, not knowing the difference. Whereas now there's a much bigger network and it's like, it's easy for someone new to sort of weed out those places and not have to spend eight months or or 10 months or 12 months, you know, um, working in places like that. And also like, it's probably easier and faster for, for the new generation of Psalms. And, and I mean, it's probably more than one generation since I came up to sort of latch on to what, you know, what the tastemakers are saying. And, and, you know, there's more tastemakers, you know, so like the, a wine being cool, Becomes cool much much faster, and and new people get locked into that stuff much much more quickly. You know, I I I, I spent a lot of time just discovering for myself what I thought was good, and um, I, I do I do think that maybe to a certain extent. So, I mean, this is a generalization, and I'm a little bit out of touch, so I, I wouldn't swear by this. But I feel like maybe that doesn't happen in the new generation of sommeliers that they don't they don't spend time without outside interference telling them what to think figuring out what's good or not you know and it's a good skill to have to form your own opinion (laughs) you know and it's not that people aren't out there forming their own opinions it's just that it's it's a little bit easier not to now because there are a lot of people out there like so that might be a a kind of difference also there's more restaurants on the level that commands a wine person and restaurant owners are much more locked into the fact that Uh, having a wine person is good for the bottom line and and good for the restaurant, good for the perception of the restaurant.
0: It seems to me like the consulting world of wine drinker and the restaurant world of wine drinker have divided more and more and more since 08. And like they're two separate worlds. Whereas at one time I felt like they were the same world. Like person came in, drank that wine at the restaurant. That's almost something a tourist would do, but not someone who lives in New York.
1: That's, I think, partly a product of... This new this you know wave of new collectors that were inspired by what they discovered at, at Cru and at Veritas, uh, among other places. You know, in oh four oh five oh six oh seven, a lot of these guys and and not to be sexist, but mainly they are guys. They were engaged in in like learning about wine, like I was in in you know ninety six to to you know. Uh, never never stops, but you know that's kind of flurry of of learning at at first. And so they were, I mean, they had a lot of money from the economic bubble, and 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 they were going out to restaurants, and they had money to spend, and and you know there were sommeliers like Robert and and Tim Kopac who were like helping them along. So for them, it, going to 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 spend money on those wines was like part of it, part of the process for them. And then you know over the over the the next you know five or six years, they built big collections. So now you know, they got to know sort of the, the, the market value of wines. They knew what they paid for something, you know, restaurant markups can be strangulating and also offensive and and also fair in other ways. And it's not the same thing as going and buying it at auction. It's like, you're going to a restaurant and, but, um, so, you know, it became hard for them to like stomach paying X amount for a wine that they just paid, you know, X divided by three or four, you know, whatever it was. So they started bringing wine to restaurants or going to restaurants that, that would let them bring wine. You know, and then the people who used to not be able to afford those wines continued not to be able to afford those wines.
0: What's the difference between what works in consulting as a wine consultant and right. what works in a restaurant? What are the different skill sets? What are the different you know, situations you find yourself in that you just don't carry over to the other world?
1: It's a big skill to like, pay attention to and learn and become comfortable with market value. An ongoing process. You don't necessarily, unless you're you're at a place like Crew or Veritas or or Danielle or Rebel, you don't necessarily need to understand market value that much. When you're dealing with collectors, you're dealing much more with blue chip wines, almost exclusively, and a little bit of, of little you know less expensive stuff. But um, you know you can get away with. I mean, it's not ideal, but you can get away with not being completely locked into market values for blue chip wines as a wine director or a sommelier, unless you're working at Crewe or a place like that or at Danielle. But it's really important for consulting and, you know, it's something market value shifts every day. So it's not like you can master it and then, you know, take a break. It's like, you know, it's kind of boring. It's not, uh, it's not, uh, it's not fun, but, uh, but it's important. So that's one thing. I don't know if that answers your question.
0: Well, I'd be curious what's going to make you happy in the future. I mean, yeah. you've done a lot of things. You've worked at a wine bar. You've worked at a four-star restaurant. You've worked at a, you know, a place with huge wine lists. You've worked at a place with a small wine list. And, right. and you've said that you've made the same kind of list, but I think that's probably yeah. only really apparent to you. At the same yeah, yeah. time, you've done some cool innovations along yeah. the way, doing a right. half bottle, You know, opening up a bottle, serving it by the half bottle. Right some details about organization behind the scenes stuff right. that a lot of people would never think about. Right. You've done significant amounts of consulting for really high powered people. Mm-hmm. You've done openings. You've done restaurants that have been open for a long time. Right. What's going to make you happy in the future? I mean, you're still a young guy. Yeah. Where does, what happens next with Slover? Um,
1: yeah. Good question. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I'd certainly like to, I enjoy working with collectors and, and uh, I found I really enjoy writing wine lists a lot. I've had the chance to do that twice in the last year and, you know, it's it's kind of like being a wine director without having to work service or manage people, which is ideal. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I've thought about um, going after a kind of more corporate beverage manager kind of a position for a restaurant group or something like that. But, uh, you know, (laughs) like I'd be curious to try that out at some point. Um, if, if something, something good comes my way, but, uh, I mean, whether that makes me happy, who knows, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm happy doing, I'm happy working around wine. I mean, like I've never understood how people can sort of pick and choose what they like about, a about an industry or it's like, if you really enjoy drinking Latash, like how the fuck do you not enjoy like making sure a wine cellar is organized properly and the bin number system works functionally and you know that's a, in a totally different way you know as sort of stimulating and exciting as you know drinking a L- latache it's all part of the same thing it's like respect for the thing that you like yeah exactly so you know i'm i i was super happy working in restaurants particularly with the amazing people that i was able to work with it was interfering with my recreational amateur soccer career. <laughs> Just kidding. But, um, but yeah, no, it was time to move on. Just, uh, I mean, thank you for saying that I'm still young, but, uh, you know, it gets harder and harder to deal with, uh, working service five nights a week or six nights a week, the older you get. So, you know, that took away from happiness. So now I've found something else with consulting, which is great because it allows me to to be around wine, to be around, you know, wine buyers and 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 to buy wine as well for for people and and uh you know and to write wine lists it's great it's a great industry to be in
0: what would you say is words of advice Mm -hmm. a couple words couple sentences to the person just starting to learn about wine think that they're really interested in it and then to the person who's an older person thinking about how they can take their sommelier career and segue it Mm -hmm. into not being as physically demanding as they're getting older right
1: in in the former case with new younger people, you know, I, I guess I would say two two things. One is, you know, try to be original. You know, try to you know figure out what you, what you like without uh, you know without worrying about what other people like or what 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 is perceived as being cool, and and own it. You know, it's like if you like a wine, fucking own it. You know, and if if people disagree with you, big deal that's one thing. And then the other thing is to understand that there's all these parts to being a wine director or a sommelier that, uh, you know, some things are viewed as sexy and, and full of glory and some things are viewed as, you know, maybe beneath you or, or whatever, but they're all part and parcel of the same thing. Like I said, I, en- I enjoy all the parts of it because they're all part of the same thing. You know, when I, in the times when I've had to interview sommeliers, junior psalms or whatever, I've always spent a lot of time Talking about how eighty percent of what you're gonna do is carry boxes, put them away, make sure things are organized, make sure we can find it when we need it, make sure that the wine list pages are in the wine list correctly. You know, it's like, you know, there's a lot of boring stuff that we're going to do, and that's part of it. You know, and I talking about that, and I watch the eyes glaze over, and no, I'm kidding. but uh, but yeah. So so those are those are the two things I would I would probably say is you know be original and and, and you know understand what you what turns you on, forget about what other people turn turns other people on and then you know get acquainted with seller organization and stuff like that and then for the for other people who want to move out of restaurants i would say it just it's important who you know and it's important to like be around wine people and wine collectors and and uh and it's important to like study market values and you know the amount of uh, hours in the day that i'm on you know the wine market journal website is like can be soul crushing <laughs> you know it's like if i look up one more wine price i'm gonna kill myself but uh you know that's you have to know that stuff
0: john slover he's seen a lot of things change in the wine business but he's written the same list each time thank you very much for being here today thank you appreciate it Levy. john slover all drink to that is hosted and produced by myself levy dalton aaron skella has contributed original pieces editorial assistance has been provided by bill kimsey The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the